You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we are in Lecumberri. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Friber. I am the host of this episode and I am in Lecumberri on a day when the unthinkable happened. Namely, Kian Uterbrooks relinquished the honour of least pronounceable name on the Vuelta a España to some of the locations visited on today's route through Navarra and the Basque Country, including... Zuarrarrate. And... Uarte Araquil. That, incidentally, was not my co-pilot today, but Ivan Iturraldi, a Basque from close to Lecumberri, who listens to the cycling podcast, now lives in London, and introduced himself at the finish today. I say a Basque. Um, I've already, well, stepped back into those slightly, well, murky waters, um, shark-infested waters. Um, anyway, it was great to meet Ivan at the finish today. Hailing from another contested territory, not Navarra or the Basque country, but not Watford this evening is my guest, my co-pilot. It is Lionel Burney. Lionel, how are you doing? Very well, thank you, Daniel. Yes, I've been absent from Vuelta a España duty for three days, and it feels like the we know the race has been well. It's gone through the wash, hasn't it? Extraordinary. Uh, I was catching up on it all today, so I feel like I've witnessed uh, the ups and downs of Remco Evenepoel's uh, long weekend in fast forward. I suppose he up, down, up, down, and uh, well, in the thick of the action again today. Yes, he was very much well, back on the jet ski today, wasn't he, Lionel? Um, I very much expected when he forced his way, cleaved open the sort of the door to the breakaway today, I very much expected us to see an action replay of what we saw yesterday in uh, Lara Belagua. However, well, we'll find out if that was the case um, in just a moment. In fact, Lionel, without further ado, um, in the interests of... Well, keeping tonight's episode relatively concise, shall we go straight away to the tale of the etapa? El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa. Off you go, Lionel. What happened today? Well, stage 15 from Pamplona. Any sign of the bulls in Pamplona? No sign of the bulls. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get to see that much of Pamplona. We were in, we were close to the centre of Pamplona, but not right in the guts of the city, which which is a shame because it's a city I would very much like to visit. We were in a beautiful place last night, though, Lionel, in the the Leira, the monastery of Leira, um, on the way to Pamplona from the finish yesterday. A lot of traffic jams on the road last night. We were staying about halfway. Beautiful location above a, a embalse, like a, a reservoir lake. Um, and uh, it's quite splendid it was too. But no, didn't get to see much about Pamplona. Well, stage 15, the last one before the second and final rest day, went from Pamplona, 158 kilometres to Lecunberry. Is that the Basque for Loganberry? No. It, it literally means uh, a swanky new place in Basque. Ah, interesting. And are you in a children's playground? It sounds like it. I'm, I'm outside the press room, which is adjacent to a children's playground it's adjacent to lots of things um it very feels very different from the last time i was here i was here in 2020 the ghost vuelta and the first days of the 2020 covid vuelta España in november it was a lot colder then uh, mark soler of course won on that day and there were about three or four sort of tv crews not many more journalists and well we didn't know at that point whether the vuelta was going to continue much beyond lecumberri because um, that was only the second day, I believe, but it did get all the way to Madrid, didn't it? I don't know whether we're ever going to get to the end of this tale of the Atapa. No, well, let's, let, in, let's crack on with you. it, shall we? Let's crack on with it. You're sitting at the top of the slide. At the end of the episode, you're going to go wee down the slide <laughs> and uh, we'll reconvene again after the rest day. Well, yes, it was stage 15 and the start was very, very aggressive. Lots of attacking and Remco Evenepoel, yesterday's stage winner, was at the... Well, he was at the forefront of everything that was going on at the front of the race, attacking in his very fetching King of the Mountains leader's jersey. And he forced away a very strong group of 14 riders. And it included uh, the best place rider in that group on GC was Santiago Butrago of Bahrain Victorious. He was at 13 minutes 15. And including Remco himself, three stage winners 
of the welter so far, the other two being Leonard Kemner, and uh, he's of Bora Hansgrove, of course, and Andreas Kron of Lotto Destiny. And the break got away, stayed away, and they had this really interesting finishing circuit over the Puerto de Zurarate. How have I done on the pronunciation there? Okay. Well, it was brave. It was brave. <laughs> 10 it, points for bravery. It is. It's, accuracy. A, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. Anyway, Chris Hamilton was one of the first to try and split the group down. Remco was alive to that one. And then Butrago had a go. And then 30 kilometers ago, Hamilton had another go, uh, but didn't get anywhere. Uh, Jimmy uh, Janssen's Alpus into Koenig, he attacked over the top of the climb to take the intermediate sprint points, uh, basically doing the defensive work for his teammate, Caden Groves, who is in the green jersey. And I guess with Remco on the offensive so much, he's worried about that points gap coming down with so many mountainous stages still to come. Then on the final climb of that uh, hill that I'm not going to attempt again, Rui Costa and Santiago Butrago went clear and they were looking pretty good, although the distribution of work between the pair of them was not at all even, was it? And Butrago made his feelings pretty obvious. He wanted Rui Costa to do a bit more work, but Rui Costa, wily old fox, uh, he was sitting tight, so much so that Kemner caught them with around 700 meters to go to the top of the climb Buitrago decided that was enough messing around and he attacked went over the top first but then Kemner got back up to them went clear on his own overshot a corner on the descent uh, Costa and Buitrago then continued their conversations now they were riding towards the line but they let Kemner right back into it and then we had this extraordinary sight in the finishing straight where it looked for a moment like the front three might be caught by the Remco Express. The gap was just too big and Rui Costa opened his sprint. I think he was always going to beat Santiago Butrago in the sprint, but Kemner put up a strong fight. But Rui Costa, the Portuguese, won the stage. His first Grand Tour stage win in just over a decade He's won three stages of the Tour de France. The last was in 2013 when he won a couple in quick succession. And it was Antomarche Circus Wanty's first Grand Tour stage win of the season. No change to the GC. Uh, Remco Evenepoel has, uh, well, he's not moved up any places, but he's cut the time gap down to a mere 16 minutes 22. So he's still in the overall picture. Maybe, maybe not, probably not. Uh, the points jersey, Caden Groves is still in that. King of the Mountain jersey, Remco is still in that. The rest day is tomorrow, and then the climbing resumes in earnest on Tuesday. Lionel, just one other thing to mention. Garrett Thomas had another crash in what is turning out to be a pretty ill-starred Vuelta España for him. Of course, he came into the race as one of the favourites, I suppose, to win the race. Um, I did hang around to see if I could get a word with Garrett after the finish. Um, he was pretty beaten up. Um, his jersey was ripped in all sorts of places and he, well, he carried straight on through to the Ineos Grenadiers team bus. We hope to get some kind of update from Ineos about his condition maybe before the end of recording tonight but Lionel you talked there about well Rui Costa and Leonard Kemner we'll talk a bit more about the sort of intricacies of their tactics the way they played things um, in the finale but I can tell you that also just beyond the finish line and um, waiting for the riders to come in uh, where Leonard Kemner was sort of well he was licking his proverbial metaphorical wounds. Uh, Rui Costa came past and it sort of gave him a friendly pat on the back. There didn't seem to be a, any animosity, any ill feeling, certainly between those two. Um, Santiago Buitrago, he's a very affable fella. Um, we've seen that when we've spoken to him in the past. I didn't actually get the chance to interview him. I was off talking to other people, but there didn't, there didn't seem to be any angst there on his part either. And maybe we'll discuss in just a minute whether, whether there could or should have been any angst. Um, as you said, Lionel, um, cunningness is Rui Costa's, well, that's his hallmark, isn't it? That's his trademark, uh, to plagiarise a line from a famous UK sitcom. Well, you wouldn't call Blackadder a sitcom, would you? A comedy series many years ago. Um, he's about as cunning as a fox. He was appointed professor of cunning at Oxford University. And that is <laughs> Rui Costa. Um, 
Lionel, should we hear now from some of the protagonists um, in today's stage? First, I propose that we hear from Leonard Kemner, who, as you said, crashed on the way into the finish. But I thought played it, um, played his cards pretty well, having got back on his bike. The obvious thing to do might have been to counterattack when he did manage to make it up to Butrago and Rui Costa, but he didn't. He backed himself in the sprint and almost pulled it off. So we'll hear from him first, Leonard Kemner. Then we're going to hear from Valerio Piva, the Italian director sportif of the Antel Marche, the winning team. And then we're going to hear a familiar voice. We're going to hear from King Kenny Elisonde, who, as we heard the other day, doesn't refer to himself as King Kenny, um, was quite bashful. And when I asked him to introduce himself as King Kenny, um, he rides for Little Trek, of course, and he was in the move. Um, he, he, well, um, went to great lengths to be in the move that yielded the stage winner. But I think his efforts to get into that break ultimately cost him any chance of victory. Just as I introduced those three riders, um, Cartel Reyes has appeared on the horizon. Maybe we'll hear from him, Fram Reyes, a bit later on. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think I would have had a good chance. I had like a small gap and uh, yeah, uh, super stupid for me. Like I took this corner full risk and uh, mid corner I noticed like, oh, f I have no chance to get this corner now. So I tried to like uh, do damage control, right straight. But yeah, afterwards it was uh, still possible to win actually, which uh, quite surprised me. But I think uh, I missed my biggest chance there. I played it good, like when I noticed the guys are out of fume, I said like, okay, now I have to go. And then I actually felt really good, I had like really good legs. And uh, yeah, just a pity that I couldn't uh, finish it off. Like at one point I was in the front and then I was like, okay, no, I cannot uh, stop it anymore. And then I just opened up my sprint like 200 or something to go. Had a small gap, but I came up and uh, yeah, he overtook me. Lenny, when you came back, we thought you might counter straight away and go straight through. Did you think about maybe trying that? Uh, they, they saw me from behind. They were just waiting that I do like the counter attack and be on my rear. So uh, I actually just said like, okay, now I'm going to sprint. I poker now. Yeah, but the plan was start already at the start of this Vuelta. He was uh, looking at the stage from the beginning. So it was his uh, objective, try to do, uh, try to win the stage. So it was our objective also, actually. We don't have a GC rider, we, we had a bad luck to losing some riders and uh, so the objective was today for us. So Rui was uh, yesterday also in the move but he understand that that was not possible and then he saved everything for today. The strategy was simple, was uh, support Rui so long possible and help him to, to go in the good breakaway and what happened. And then he did, he did a fantastic job, uh, he's a champion. <laughs> He managed to, to, to control uh, the breakaway and then he attacked in the good moment and he was cool in the final. Little bit luck also, uh, because every time when you win, you, you need to have also a little bit luck. And, but, so we, we are very happy. Yeah. When you saw Remco in that group, were you afraid that, well, we were going to see an action replay of yesterday? Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you. For sure, it was uh, Renko, the, the stronger there in the front. He did. Uh, we 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 understand fast that he was there for the GC, for the king of the mountain, but also for the stage. Of course, he was alone, and that is uh, maybe also the reason that he cannot jump every behind everybody. But uh, he spent a lot of energy yesterday. I think also today. So that was uh, he's also a human rider. So I think it's normal that he. He was not able to jump uh, behind everybody, and that is the chance that uh, Costa take, and uh, yeah, that is good. And it's another one of these riders that your team has taken, has taken when other teams maybe think that they are at the end of their career. Your team is do has done this quite a lot over the last two or three years. Yeah, we we give the chance to Rain Taramae, to Manchester, to. Uh, to Christoph, uh, now uh, now Rui, so riders champions. Finally, they are really good riders. They win in the past a big race, and then uh, we believe in this guy. Maybe they are at the end, but they are still uh, ambition, and we give this chance. Uh, we support, and we are paid back with uh, this nice uh, victory, and we are very happy to do this. Yeah. Uh, Kenny, you made it into the break, but it was hard to get into that break, wasn't it? And I guess you spent a lot of energy. 
getting across? Yeah, um, to be honest, it was not really the plan to go in a break for me today. Uh, it was more, we were thinking about um, kind of sprinter who can climb, you know, kind of break away, but then uh, it went quite banana, you know, and even GC guy, Vlasov, Soler. And at one moment, it was so hard, and you know, Remco was attacking and attacking and attacking, and the bunch started to be really tired. And at that point, yeah, I think uh, the break went, and when, well, when I was in the break, uh, was already done more or less. And when they started to attack, I had cramps straight away. And yesterday, Roman talked about how hard it was to be on Remco's wheel. I, I guess you didn't spend that much time on Remco's wheel, but. Did you feel as though, well, he might do what he did yesterday, today? It didn't happen. Rui Costa won, but did you feel that was going to happen? Uh, I know the feeling. I trained with, I trained with him in Andorra. I know the feeling. It's, it's infernal. He's, uh, he's just so strong, you know. But, uh, yeah, even if on a day like this, for example, he feel like average, maybe he was feeling average, you don't know it, you know. He's always smooth, so. Yeah, he's... Uh, a special kind, you know, and uh, even today, I mean, you, you saw how many effort. I mean, I don't know, it, is it in integral the, the race? You, 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 um, yeah, yeah, you will see. He's attacking so much, it's crazy. I mean, if we attack one like he do, we need five minutes recovery, and he can, he can keep going, keep going, keep going. Keep, so he's special. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Chicos, ¿quién es el favorito? Vuestro favorito. Well, Lionel, that was Leonard Kemner, Valerio Piva, King Kenny Elisond, and then finally we've just heard a bit of the atmosphere in Pamplona this morning. Um, there were uh, a lot of fans sort of overlooking the mix zone. Some of them very, very young fans, not much more than about six or seven years old. And I was mightily impressed, as you might have heard there, with their knowledge of the runners and riders in this Vuelta a España. They all had different favourites. You heard one there whose favourite was Emmerich Maas, another one who liked Primoz Roglic. And um, well, that was nice to see because we often hear that in old Europe, Spain, Italy, cycling is, is dying and that young people aren't interested in it. But certainly those guys were. Unfortunately, Lionel, well, not unfortunately, I took great pleasure in doing this, Lionel, but I was sort of commandeered by them and their parents to act as a go-between to take their various caps and autograph books and get them signed for the riders who were you know, some distance away. Um, I managed it with a couple of riders. I managed it notably with uh, Abel Balderstone, or Balderstone, uh, Balderstone, the Catalan who I spoke to this morning, riding for Caja Rural, whose father we didn't know, well, we knew he was English, of English origin. I took it upon myself this morning to find out exactly where he is from. His father is from in the UK, and I was told Lancaster. And it was also confirmed to me this morning that old Balderstone, Balderstone, um, he's not too keen on speaking English, as we suggested might be the case a few days ago. Much more comfortable, as you would expect, in Spanish and Catalan. Lionel. Well, Balderstone, 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 uh, our Lancastrian friends would correct me on the pronunciation but it's a village isn't it in yeah not far from manchester yeah so we, we can't go down the route of of swearing accuracy full accuracy to regional pronunciations now can we i already got in trouble on twitter this morning for kian utterbrooks his first name not even his second name because it wasn't irish enough um, well he he actually says kian yes in, uh, the uh, the irish pronunciation is keen but uh it seems, it, he says kian yeah but i'm not gonna if you listen to the interview uh, that richard did in 2022 we actually got kian out out to pronounce his to pronounce his name uh, correctly yeah and maybe we should just play that every time we mention him yeah we're not gonna make a commitment to 
pronouncing his first name like we're from County Tipperary, despite the fact that you and I are both actually officially <laughs> Irish to some degree. Officially. Lionel, we will at some point soon, We, I promise the listeners, we will get onto the stage, and um, particularly that stage finale that we promised to dissect. But um, just passing the press room um, as we got sort of tangled up in all of that nonsense was... Uh, a gentleman who I said last night we probably wouldn't see again at the Vuelta a España. We thought he was leaving yesterday, but Fran Reyes, our good friend, Cartel Reyes, as I rechristened him last night, um, I think he's here um, and he would like to say goodbye. Well, he'd like to say hello to you and another farewell, this one a final farewell on this Vuelta a España to the listeners, I believe. Unless some Spanish rider wins and you ask me to elucidate about him and how we met in this mountain. <laughs> Well, Fran, we will make use of you while you're here because Lionel and I, well, I mentioned the fact earlier I hadn't spoken to Santiago Buitrago and I wonder, was he upset at the finish? Did you speak to any of our Colombian colleagues about whether he was upset with Rui Costa and the, the work that Rui Costa did or didn't do? He was a bit disappointed. I mean, but he, he has been in a low mood throughout this Vuelta because he wasn't exactly prepared as he wanted to be and he wasn't in his best shape and he has struggled quite a bit during these days so I wasn't surprised to see that he wasn't in good spirits after the finish line of course this all this tension gets in your nerves gets under your skin but uh, yeah he was not particularly moody uh, as to how he was during the other two weeks of this welter Again, Fran, since you're here, I will ask you, and then Lionel, you can come in on the back of this. Um, what do we think of Rui Costa? And well, first of all, this reputation that he has. I don't know how many incidents this is based on, how many episodes this is based on, of him not being the most collaborative partner in breakaways, him tending to what we well, we call it in English, crystal crank, pretend that he's weaker than in actual fact he is. Um, is it genius? Is it Machiavellian? Um, is it something to be supported or something to be frowned upon? He's canny, you know, it's full canniness. He's a very wise guy, very smart guy. He was always reputed for this. Back when he was in Caisse they looked a bit down on him because he wasn't the best teammate. He wasn't a reliable guy to take turns or pull from the bunch in bad situations. Yet he got into that role bit by bit. He has always found teams on which he could go get this joker role. And right now, he's where he belongs, really. An intermarché on which there is no leader for whom to pull on a grand tour and on which he can go stage hunting for himself. So it's a kind of career, a type of rider that might be controversial for some people, but it's still a very successful one, I believe. Controversial but successful, much like yourself, Fran. Um, on that note, we will well wish you a, a safe journey to wherever you're off to tonight, and we'll maybe catch up with you on the phone next week. My pleasure. Lionel, your thoughts on Fran's analysis and generally on what we saw from Rui Costa in the finale today? Well, there's a couple of things there, isn't there? I mean, not being the best and most cooperative teammate is one thing. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, he's not he's not a worker type rider, is he? He's a he's a he is a bit of a lone wolf, a freelancer, um, and and that's that's something for teams to take into account and you know really work with rather than against if they believe that he has an, a, a role to play in the team. So that put that to the side. In the case of the way he rode today, uh, or his general reputation for not collaborating, well, I mean, that's bike racing, folks. Yeah, I mean, that's the my idea view. is to The idea is to try and win, right? And there isn't a... You know, there is no... Um, uh, there's no requirement to share work uh, as long as the rider accepts that the consequences might be that he'll find himself in a group where no one wants to work with him or he gets completely worked over. What goes around comes around in the peloton. And, you know, possibly you could say maybe that's why it's been 10 years since he last won a Grand Tour stage. I mean, he does get himself into positions relatively uh, frequently, uh, but this is the first opportunity he's really had to finish something off and, and uh, get himself a, a victory. Um certainly this season 
So, I mean, we try well, to go he, there. He had, kind he, of he had that fantastic start to the season, didn't he? He's, he has had a new lease of life at Intermarché. Um, he won a stage in the Volta Valenciana and then he won the GC. And, well, he was, he was the, the hot sort of rider. He, he was the rider on the hottest form um, of anyone in the peloton in sort of February and then cooled off somewhat in the summer. Had a difficult Tour de France. He spoke about that in the press conference. Yeah. I think he, he went into the Tour de France with kind of GC, vague GC ideas, um, but that didn't work. Yeah, I, I kind of was meaning at, at this kind of elite level. Yeah, yeah he had a he had a, a, a tricky Tour de France. I suppose, uh, you know, Buitrago is a relatively young rider, but he's experienced enough to know that that's how it works. I mean, he was clearly frustrated that Rui Costa wouldn't give him a turn. I wondered whether Rui Costa was kind of saying, look, you do the climb and I'll do the downhill. But that didn't seem to be the case either. And even when they it's, were... It's a bit of a rough deal, um, that, isn't it? It's a bit of a rough deal. Well, it, I'll do the descent. It, you you do the 12 kilometers at 5% or whatever the final climb was, and I'll do the three kilometers downhill. Well, that's true. But also the, 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 the aim of the game is to get to the line to contest the finish. And that's what Buitrago wanted to do. Uh, Buitrago relying on beating Rui Costa or really anybody um, in the sprint was a was a tall order. So he needed to take his chances. So I suspect his irritation was that he wasn't able to sit on the wheel, recover for a little bit and then attack. And that's precisely why Rui Costa left him out there to dry. And, you know, that's all part of the game, isn't it? I mean, Buitraga could have slowed right down and, you know, pulled over to the side of the road and made it even more theatrical um, and forced Rui Costa to go through. Um, but, you know, it's uh, what's interesting is that Rui Costa, you know, ice cool um, blood in his veins because allowing Kemner to get back on and then still... Uh, opening up the sprint and, uh, and and winning the stage was was impressive. And I think, uh, I mean, our very good friend Brian Nygaard has said something on Twitter that I wouldn't really agree with. Yeah, but, I'm not which, sure Rui Costa's management, who are quite friendly with uh, Brian Nygaard, were too thrilled about that. <laughs> well, what Brian said was uh, he's he's heard of pickpockets who have more charm. Uh, summarising the the comment, and well, I think there's something to be admired about winning a race uh, in in such a yeah. You know, I mean, I don't want to overplay it. Not skullduggery, is it? To to basically try and exploit um, the impatience, the weakness, the you know whatever it is in the opponent. Rui Costa's aim was to win the stage, and he did it. And it's for the others to look back and go, well, what could they have done differently? I mean, fair play to Leonard Kemner. He was fantastic, I thought. You know, overcooked that corner. Obviously, that cost him dearly. And as you say, uh, backed himself in the sprint by not um, launching some kind of move as soon as he got onto the back wheel. I suspect he's probably pretty tired, even though it did look like Rui Costa and Buitrago had slowed down again. They were kind of doing the, the track sprinter thing of trying to psych each other out. Uh, but I think it's all part of, all part of bike racing there is no requirement to share work at any point if you don't want to yeah i suppose end of story the, the supreme the only arbiter you could say of Rui costa and his modus operandi is his palmares and uh, and where that sits relative to what his potential was and this is where it gets difficult to judge because you know we don't know whether had Rui costa had he been more forthcoming on certain occasions would he have won more um, maybe he would have won less but he certainly had a very fine career and he's won on many occasions when in the post-match analysis people have leveled this criticism at him and he has sort of had the last laugh well yeah no more uh, indication of that than when he won the world title in florence 10 years ago uh, in a group there with uh well, well, at least a couple of Spaniards because uh, Joaquim Rodriguez was the one that he out-sprinted and, and Alejandro Valverde took the bronze medal just behind them. Uh, and that was another sort of pickpocket uh, ride by Rui Costa. You know, out-muscled out in terms of numbers. You know, riding for Portugal, always going to be um, the, the lone gun in, in any kind of group in the World Championship. So, but like you say, yeah, maybe... Um, 
you know, he hasn't managed to add uh, the number of wins that perhaps his talent um, you would, would lead you to expect. Because of that racing style, maybe he, you know, pushes his luck too often. I mean, it's it, like you say, it's difficult to kind of analyse an entire career through the prism of one welter stage win. Um, but uh, it, taken in total isolation today, he's perfectly in his rights to race however he fancies racing, if that gives him the best chance of winning. Lionel, let's talk a little bit more about, well, let's talk about Remco Evenepoel first. In fact, let's not talk about it. Let's hear from Remco Evenepoel after the finish today and well let's hear him talk about why he didn't succeed today where he did yesterday no i think today uh especially uh Bitrago was was i think the strongest of the breakaway in the end uh, Rui costa was probably the smartest one and uh yeah kemna was uh, was also strong but a bit more hesitating than the others than the other two uh, and we all know Kemna can always go very deep uh, when he's suffering. So uh, I think uh, probably the strongest and smartest guy uh, end up in front. But for me today, the final uh, kind of local lap was a bit too much. And uh, yeah, I just ran completely out of energy. So uh, no regrets, uh, gave my best. And especially after yesterday, I think it's a pretty good result. Well, I know Remco had a few issues today. One of them was obviously the tiredness that he brought into today's stage and the other one was that he didn't have a teammate with him in that break away and that we're seeing that increasingly in the breakaways that do succeed particularly in world tour races now and this applied well it applied to Leonard Kemner um, this afternoon having a strong teammate is very important isn't it particularly with Remco Remco was the he was the marked man he was the guy who everyone well, kind of expected to serve up a repeat of yesterday and hence um, he was going to have to close down all the moves wasn't he yeah and the amount of work he had to do to get the breakaway in the first place was significant i mean every time i saw anything from the start of the broadcast uh Evenepoel was on the front and pushing it away making sure that it was going to stay away in that phase where you know there was there be some uncertainty about whether the peloton was happy with the uh, uh, the riders that were in it and uh, and then he was obviously going to be the most watched man if he tried to do something on the first climb of the the two towards the end he would have been marked maybe his smarter move would have been to try and whittle that group down maybe cut it in half and increase his chances the first time up but perhaps it was just a case that you know done so much riding in the last uh, 48 hours and of course you know fell apart a bit 24 hours before that uh, it's a lot to expect and uh, I think uh, seeing him riding in such an aggressive way I mean it, it it is entertaining. You can't take your eyes off him. Uh, you never quite know what he's going to do next. And uh, like you say, uh, today, perhaps just a, a step too far. But I expect him to do you know, more over the final week of the race because presumably now he's got his eyes on that King of the Mountains jersey. Yes, he has. Uh, six jerseys he's worn so far in the Vuelta España. Can you name them, Lionel? Yeah. Six different jerseys? Well, he's worn... Uh, let me let me get this right. Yeah, so he's worn the World Time Trial Champions jersey. He's worn the Belgian National Championship jersey. He's worn the Leaders jersey, the King of the Mountain jersey, the white jersey as best young rider. And that's it. No, five. He's won all of the, he's been wearing all of the, he's worn all of the prize jerseys, the Walter Price jerseys, including green, I believe. Uh, although I don't remember exactly which day that was. And he's worn the National Champions jersey and the World TT Champions jersey. So that makes six, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Lionel, he was... He's not, he's not worn, oh, he might have worn, has he worn the green jersey? Yes. But not... He's not owned the green jersey. Okay. I believe he's won all, all God, six. Testing my, mem testing my memory of jersey trivia here. But. Yes. Um, Lionel, he was also, he was really, well, he was active in the first phase of the race and the second phase of the race. And those two phases were separated by an extraordinary sequence of events. Well, an extraordinary sort of 10 or 15 minutes of racing where UAE yet again, 
Um, having tried to sort of set the cat amongst the pigeons yesterday on the Puerto de Larao or Porte de Larao, they were on the offensive again with Marc Soler. And uh, they managed to place Soler in a big group featuring Remco and others. And they forced, well, Jumbo Visma and Jumbo Visma's three leaders to chase to the extent where it was a very small group at one stage behind, um, well, in the second group on the road, effectively, behind the Soler and Avonapool group. And it was up to, well, Dylan Van Baller was the main man to restore order. He played policeman, came back up to Roglic, Kuss, Vingegaard, and he, well, he set such a, a high pace that A, he brought back Soler, and B, sort of deterred other dangerous attacks um, for, well, for, for the next several kilometers until the, the new move sort of developed. But Lionel, we've always sort of thought of Marc Soler as a bit of a chaos bomb. He's the ultimate chaos bomb, isn't he? In any circumstance, he could he could be a chaos bomb in an empty room. Um, but he is in a Vuelta a España in which um, he's still very much in contention for the podium, and he's still got well another rider on his team, Juan Ayuso, who is the the best of the rest still in this Vuelta a España, isn't he? Yes, uh, very much best of the rest, though, isn't it? There. I mean, are we going to talk a bit about Jumbo Visma and what we expect of them over the final week? Well, at this, the race, at, the, at, this at this point, point? Lionel, you weren't with us last night, but at this point in the episode, traditionally, we play the Succession theme tune. Um. <laughs> Lionel, I'm really pulling this by its hair. Um, the Succession analogy, I think you've watched that series. Um, I think we, we can eke it out for another three or four days. Um, we haven't cast characters yet. We haven't decided, determined who is... Uh, Roman, who is Siobhan, who is Kendall. Um, but Jumbo Visma, just briefly, Lionel, um, have you had any thoughts sort of percolating and marinating over the last three or four days about what might unfold when we get to the three big mountain stages next week in terms of the, the, the sort of chain of command at Jumbo Visma? Yes, I kind of have. I mean, I think Sepkus looks like he can win the Vuelta now. I think that although there's still a lot of uh, difficult stages to go and the Angli route might be a concern potentially. Uh, I just think that he's 2.37 ahead of Juan Ayuso, uh, three minutes ahead of Enric Mass. Uh, he's got to have some kind of collapse really because he's got this kind of, you know, this, this protective buffer with the Jumbo Visma riders around him. As I said uh, before, you know, uh, Remco fell out of contention and, and Nostradamus Napalm. I actually did make that point that, that, uh, Remco, you know, we were all wondering what he could do to try and catapult himself above the Jumbo Visma trident, but the possibility of him having a bad day himself and uh, falling away completely, uh, didn't seem to be on too many people's radars, but you know, me looking for the negatives in everything. Uh, <laughs> I saw that scenario pot potentially playing out. I, I do think now though, the only danger for Jumbo Visma is that they kind of, have to ride slightly defensively, don't they? Because they don't want to blow up Sepkus because I think even the, the, the riders in the team would, would say to this point, he deserves to be uh, solidly in the lead. It's just a case of, uh, like I said last week, you know, Sepkus's honesty will probably be the, their most important asset over the next week because if he is feeling like mm, maybe today is my bad day. I think he would be open about that and give the other two um, the nod nice and early rather than just, do you think he's just going to fall out of contention? There's going to be a moment where, where he will say, no, over to you, Primoz. Yeah, I mean... And I think they've, they've got it so tied up, it, it will be fine for them as a team. And I just think there's such a kind of uh, maybe maybe it's my kind of uh, English speaker's bias here, or the fact that you know there's a there is a sort of symmetry to the fact that Roglic won the Giro, Vingegaard won the Tour, and uh, Kuss winning the Vuelta. I mean, it would be a, a historic achievement uh, by Jumbo Visma and by the three riders. I I think that they will they will protect him, but 
as I said last this time last week, the time trial will decide all. Now I think it moves on. The Angliru will decide all. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations, Icon of the Seas, Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Lionel, just a couple of things on that. Um, I had a, I went for a coffee today with um, both Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingegaard's manager, uh, Mattia Galli. He swears, he swore to me, and I do believe him, and he seems very sincere. Um, he swore to me today that the mood in the camp is great, um, full, it's completely harmonious at the moment. They are pretty, everyone's pretty happy with status quo, which doesn't, of course, mean that um, they will they will sacrifice their own chances, you know, to ensure that Sepkus wins the Vuelta a España. Um, that's certainly not the case. I don't think anyone would expect that to be the case. Um, also, you know, just the sort of speculation and the kind of dot joining is, and the sort of doping innuendo is kind of ramping up, isn't it, on social media? I've noticed that. I saw uh, Jérôme Pinot, the old, well, quick step rider, B&B Hotels, team manager he made an appearance on a french radio station yesterday i believe in which he um, made very very strong and i would say irresponsible allegations against jumbo visma to the effect that they were motor doping which uh, you know if you haven't got any evidence and he didn't seem to have any evidence beyond uh, a very big attack by sep Kuss, um, on the top of the, or on the final kilometres on the Tourmalet. Um, that seems extremely irresponsible to me. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the questions were inevitable from the moment that they did the one, two, three on the stage and now are sitting one, two, three overall. But let's think back a couple of weeks. We were talking about the possibility of Jumbo Visma being the strongest Grand Tour team of all time. There's a, uh, the, the, the most recent Giro champion, the most recent tour champion, and without really any doubt, the, the best mountain support rider in the world. And now that they've kind of demonstrated that on the road, suddenly the questions ramp up. And I just think there's a bit of a kind of, uh, there's there's not a lot of joined up thinking in that. That doesn't mean I'm giving them an absolute, you know, uh, you know, um, clean bill of health and 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 sticking my hand in the fire for them or anyone but i don't necessarily think that the performances are uh, out of the ordinary in the sense that you know we said before the race that they were the strongest team with certainly two of the strongest riders um and sepkus let's not forget you know gained that time from being in a break really didn't he so well, let's see how things play out over the final week. But just one corrections corner, Daniel, because Remco has not worn the points jersey has in this welter. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, who gave me that dud information? Um, I will find them and hang, draw and quarter them tonight um, on my way to Vittoria Gasteis, where we're staying this evening. Uh, Lionel, um, let's pivot at this point, shall we? And we haven't heard from Lucky Larry, the Motown maestro, for a couple of days, although I did speak to him yesterday morning. I did speak to him again this morning, and he brought someone with him into the mix zone, where we generally have our meetings. Um, his roommate, his teammate, Mikael Cherel, who I thought we would pay tribute to because he's one of these stalwarts of the peloton who's been around forever and turned pro in 2006. The Vuelta will be his last race, last race of his career. He's had a great career. He's ridden, well, spent many years alongside uh, Romain Bardet. And one of these riders who does his work mainly in the shadows, never won a pro race. Um, don't know whether he will get the opportunity to before we reach Madrid next week. Let's, let's hope so. Anyway, um, 
Here I am in conversation with Larry and Mikhail Shahel this morning. Arriba, Larry Warbas. Andale, andale. Okay, guys. Uh, well, we've got special guests today, Larry. I thought this would be a good opportunity. Well, first, I wanted to congratulate Mikhail on his career, really. I think you've just been congratulated up there on the stage of the Vuelta, but um, Mikhail, this is going to be your last Grand Tour. Your last race, is it? Yeah, I will finish uh, in a few days at Madrid. And, uh, hopefully, because it's very hard, <laughs> maybe the hardest Grand Tour for me. I'm trying to look, to look for my legs, but uh, didn't find it. <laughs> I hope uh, to have a good opportunity uh, in the next few days, but yeah, that's an hard one. You guys, Larry, Mikhail, you're rooming together. Can anyone find their legs in that hotel room where you're staying? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe the hotel rooms are just too big in this Vuelta and uh, both of our legs are lost somewhere in them. But Miguel, you turned professional in 2006. And as I said, I wanted to congratulate you because, well, it's been an incredibly long career. And it's hard to survive such a long time in, the, in professional cycling at the highest, highest level. It's hard to pick one highlight, I know. But if you had to talk about well, what's been your favourite period of those well, many years, 15, 16 years in the pro peloton? Yeah, you know, it's difficult for me to choose uh, just one moment, but uh, I will uh, enjoy uh, the whole life as a cycling rider. But yeah, if I have to choose uh, one moment, uh, maybe uh, the several uh, years with Romain Bardet, that was a really good part of uh, my life. Larry, I'm going to give you an opportunity now to pay tribute to your roommate. Talk about him as a roommate, as a rider. What do you admire most about Mikel? Uh, I have to say he's like a really good teammate. Um, you know, he's always there for the leader and for, you know, the team. And he's really good at, uh, yeah, positioning, everything like that. Um, but I have to say the other thing I respect really a lot about Mika is... Uh, I think he's actually a really good dad and like you know he has a family and I think that's really cool like uh, I don't know he spends so much time with his family he makes you know it's like with what we do it's you have to be kind of selfish and uh, I have to say I feel like he's a really well-rounded person and uh, yeah not just a cyclist and he really puts his family uh, you know first and on the same level as his cycling which I think is really cool and not easy to do and he's able to do that and also keep a high level. Well, I know that was Larry, a very tired Larry, I must say. Um, he'll be looking forward to the rest day tomorrow, as will his roommate, Mikhail Shahel. Um, talking there about retirement, this being his last race. Um, Lionel, th there's a link with today's Encuentro del Día, today's meeting of the day, the official meeting of the day. And there's also a link with the outcome of today's stage, and Santiago Buitrago, uh, the Colombian rider, who's really carrying the torch for the Colombians in this Vuelta a España. I think I might have mentioned once or twice that usually this is a huge feature of the Vuelta a España, particularly in the big cities, a huge contingents of um, Colombian immigrants, um, Colombians that have settled in Spain who come to the race and really, well, they en enliven proceedings. You've seen it as well, Lionel. They're the noisiest, the most sort of festive contingent of fans um, at pretty much every stage finish. It, it has still been the case this year, but it's been a little bit more muted. And this is partly because, well, th there aren't as many Colombians in the race and they're not doing quite as well. Of course, uh, Rigoberto Uran is not here. He's one of the big sort of cheerleaders usually. Uh, Nairo Man, Nairo Quintana is out of the picture. Superman is out of the picture and so on and so on. Um, anyway, Lionel, retirement and the state of Colombian cycling. I thought these would be interesting themes to explore with one of my friends here at the Vuelta a España. Someone I'm very proud to call a friend. He's a familiar presence now at big bike races. He works um, alongside me and others in the media and um, he's also a former yellow jersey wearer in the Tour de France. Was wearing the yellow jersey in fact on the day when Lenny Martinez who wore the leader's jersey in this Vuelta a España, was born. We mentioned that. You mentioned that, didn't you, Lionel, a few days ago. His name is Victor Hugo Peña. 
Many of the listeners will be familiar with his achievements in his many years as a professional. And um, as I said, he is the subject of today's Encuentro del Día. Here I am in conversation with Victor. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. A very familiar face in the press room. Victor Hugo Peña, I see you at a lot of races. I see you at the Tour, I see you here at the Vuelta. You work for ESPN. When I see you, you also work for... Um, well, on La Movida, the podcast with Johan Brunin. Well, Victor, first of all, it's a pleasure to have you, but tell us, what what do you do the rest of the year? When I don't see you, what are you doing back in Colombia? I presume you still live in Colombia. Yep. What are you doing the rest of the year? Normally, I work uh, for, uh, I'm, I'm own the Ironman in Colombia. So this is my normal job, searching sponsors for the race. The race is now in uh, December 3 in Cartagena, Colombia. So it's 2,000 athletes. So for me, it's uh, like a party. And uh, also, it's like a dream come true because after I stopped cycling, was kind of a hard time of my life. Because this, uh, this life of cycling is, uh, I don't know, it's like it becomes your life, everything. When I stop cycling, I start to be depressed. Then, I'm unfortunately, I have my wife, my, my family, my brother, my kids. Otherwise, I, I think I probably can take another ways, you know? And I think this is the problem for all the sports athletes after this, the stop. Because, for example, you can see, now you can see here Pereiro, Freire, Indurain, and, and many others pros working in the, the races, like a normal people, like no problem. And you have to understand that after cycling, you will be, again, normal, like a normal person. So that's why when I saw guys like uh, Renko, or the big stars now, that they, sometimes they think they are... Uh, Invincible. Yeah. They have to know that after 10, 15 years, the life will be the same, like normal people, you know? What's the hardest part of that, Victor? Is it... Obviously, you have to create a new identity. Yes. Um, is, is it hard? Maybe, I don't know. Not When you go into a room and you are a professional sportsman, everyone looks at you and treats you in a certain way. It, and and you, you still have that when you retire, but maybe you lose a bit of it. I mean, try to put into words what's the hardest part of, of that change in identity. The hardest part is when, when you are a sport athlete, you go outside, everyone knows you. Everyone say hello. Everyone wants a picture with you. When that sport life finish, the same person like yesterday ask you for the picture. Next day he, he he don't even say hello, and then you start to be like like normal like normal people, and then and then you think that that life before was like uh, your normal life. This this is the norm. No, it's not the normal life. It is it's just a time like you are a sport athlete or cyclist, professional cyclist. Also, the money is. The money is finished. This is the important thing. I mean, you have uh, cars and uh, houses and everything, but you have no salary. And then problems start to... I'm a lucky guy because after uh, probably four or five years after that times, this guy, the big uh, commentator in, uh, in America, Mario Sabato, he called me. He invited me for ESPN to, to commentate the races with him. He gave me the life again. Then I'm a lucky guy. This is, is a, like a gift from God. I can say that. <laughs> and Victor, you've been doing this for quite a long time now in the media. What have you learned about the job that we do in the media that you didn't realize that when you were a rider? Man, the riders sometimes they have no respect with the media. And they don't know that this is by the media all the world knows knows them you know and for example you or uh, carlos arribas or whatever all, all those guys they they stayed outside home his fam their family just to stay close to them to ask a, a little question you know any question and sometimes you you can you can see their their faces after six years working on the media my respect for the journalists and the real journalists, writers and everything, my respect is, because otherwise no one knows me in Colombia, for example, 
No one knows Indurain, Armstrong, Ulrich, no one. It's just by the media. Talking about riders being well known and celebrated and well treated like champions, saints, gods almost. And the Colombian fans are very special and we've seen them at the Vuelta over the last few years. They've been a big part of the Vuelta, a big part of the atmosphere at the Vuelta. There aren't as many this year. There are still a lot of Colombian fans, there aren't as many. And that's because there's no Rigo, um, Superman is not here, Nairo is out of the picture as well, Chavez is getting older. Victor, I often think about this. What's this, the current situation as you see it in terms of the Colombian? The golden generation is obviously fading. What's coming behind? Because we've got Buitrago, Tejada, not too much else. Yeah, yeah. I can say that in Colombia is thousands of cyclists. Even in uh, juniors and uh, under 23, it's too many riders. For my opinion, this is just my opinion. All the people works with uh, those uh, cyclists. They don't want to understand that the cycling changed. Now it's more science. I mean, 90% is science. Nutrition, or rest, training, uh, aerodynamics, everything, all those things. And in Colombia, they don't want to understand that. So it's a big distance between the Colombian cycling and the Colombian new cyclist and this Formula One cycling. So, and, and I know in Colombia, it's a lot of uh, people that have the, the knowledge a lot of uh, scientists, I mean, doctors and uh, coach, good coach, really, but they don't, they don't, not, they don't are working with cycling. So I'm a little sad or worried about that. Apart of my triathlon work and ESPN work, I'm also I'm trying to search a sponsor to to make a small team or a new team with juniors guys to start working in the new cycle because it's, I can say that this cycling is nothing to be a, with a medicines or it's just science yeah uh, you can see now the guys with the with the ice jackets and with the beds to sleep and how how many milligrams they eat all those things that I mean looks like they are really ma ma like machines you know this is my my opinion because in Colombia is Man, races, uh, junior races, is hundreds and thousands of guys uh, wanting to be a cyclist. Very last thing, who's going to win the Vuelta España? Mm. I would like that Sepkus. <laughs> I have to, we have to wait all those days, but I think Primos. Yeah. <laughs> I think Primos. No, 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 because Primos will attack a, a Sepkus. I don't know. I think it's uh, probably Sep after. Um, so many days, uh, high-level race days, probably one of the next days, I don't know. This is what I think. But if Sepp Kuz is, uh, he wins the Vuelta, I think he's uh, the best guy who can win, you know, probably. Well, Lionel, I thought some interesting observations, reflections, thoughts from... Victor Hugo then? Yeah. Um, yeah, the the, the, the the respect for the media only kicking in once one is part of the media. I mean, it's... Uh, it's uh, <laughs> or I suppose that the, maybe we do a poor job of explaining to the athletes, you know, what life on the road is, is like. But uh, lots of people have said after retiring and, and hopping onto our side of the fence, you know, a lot of their misconceptions about what we're doing and why and why things happen a certain way. Um, you know, they, they kind of understand a bit more uh, the, the sport from the outside. I mean, not saying necessarily that the athletes need to have an understanding of anybody else's role because their priority is their own performance. But uh, it is always interesting talking to ex-riders and, and gauging their, uh, their opinions of things, you know, even as mundane as uh, the press room buffet. <laughs> yeah, the minefield is a press room buffet. Um, I realise I, I refer to him as Victor. I never call, I call him Viace, um, VH, which is what everyone calls him. I don't know. Calling him Victor sounded a bit 
odd and um, probably wrong. I'll probably get um, called up for that. Uh, Lionel, another, speaking of another V, um, this evening we're staying in Vitoria Gasteis uh, on the way to, well, tomorrow we're staying in Santiana del Mar, which is a beautiful little town where we've stayed on numerous occasions in the Vuelta. But it occurred to me that uh, in Vitoria Gasteis, maybe I should go in search of uh, King Kelly, Sean Kelly's elusive lost Vuelta España trophy, as discussed earlier in the race. Indeed, in the in the now closed down apparently pizzeria that he didn't know the name of or the location of. Mm, well, if Sean would like to supply any leads that I could use, that I could pursue over the next few hours, then um, yeah, he's got your number, he's got my number, so um, yeah. I'm very, very glad to help on that score. Lionel, um, who is going to lift this year's Vuelta España trophy? We'll find out next week. The key stages next week, Lionel. Just, just remind us what we've got on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in particular. Well, after the rest day, stage 16, it's, it's into the kind of the traditional final week of the Vuelta. Lots of climbing, but really short, punchy, explosive stages, aren't they? So stage 16 goes to Behes, 120 kilometers. And it's a kind of a, well, it's a sort of um, jaggedy looking profile, but, uh, you know, not much uh, in the way of uh, altitude gain until the final climb up to the finish, which is a second category climb. It is 4.9 kilometers long, an average of 8.6%, but with some very steep ramps. There's a first ramp, which is 1.6 kilometers long, and that's 10.7%. And then there's a second ramp that's 2.7 kilometers long at 9.2%. So a really difficult climb, much harder than a second category rating um would suggest then it's the biggest of them all isn't it the angleroo which i exclusively revealed earlier on in our welter coverage is really quite a hard climb mm -hmm. that's stage 17 124 kilometers i uh, couldn't the I, I, oh i did i did feel for lewis askey the groupama fdj debutant who a few days ago as our listeners will have heard on the cycling podcast sounded as though we'd only just found out a matter of hours earlier while reading david miller's autobiography and putting two and two two and two together that the angleroo was on this year's route and was as you say lionel hard yeah, well, that's the famous story, isn't it? That we made a kilometre zero about David Miller's uh, unhappy day on the Angleroo. I forget which year it was now. Was it 2002? 2000, I think, was it 2002? Oh. Was it the first time the race went up in 2000? Or anyway, anyway. Right. It was the second time the race went up, but the problem was it rained all day, and so the road was very slippery, and Miller stopped literally five metres before the line. Sarah, you know, took off the numbers, and uh, quit the welter there and then. Didn't finish the race because he didn't cross the line with his numbers still on his jersey. And uh, he later said that the protest wasn't about the steepness of the Angleroo. It was about the, uh, the the danger of the descent leading into it in the wet. But uh, it's a fearsome climb. I mean, I walked up it a few years back and it is very, very steep indeed. And then stage 18, which will be on Thursday, is a bit longer, 178 kilometres. It goes to La Cruz de Linares and it has got three first category climbs including the final one up to the finish line plus just for good measure a second category climb to kick off the day so three really difficult days of climbing and uh, well that will determine which of the Jumbo Visma Trident ends up in red at the end of the race just on that Daniel watching them with uh, Dylan Van Bala in the Dutch national champions jersey and Attila Vuelta yeah. in the Hungarian national champions jersey yeah. it, it is disconcerting <laughs> I, I knew you, you loved that the first time I did it you, I'm going to keep doing it because mm. I know you, you enjoy that um Seeing three red-shouldered Jumbo Visma riders in the group is uh, a little bit discombobulating there we go. Mm. We know that mm. Sepp Kuss is wearing the, the real uh, red jersey. Easily mistaken for coffee dis, aren't they? <laughs> right. Not, not, the, not the way they're riding. <laughs> harsh, harsh coffee dis. Uh, Reborn. Winning, yeah, winning Grand Tour stages by the, not, not quite by the dozen, but um, yeah, and a plenty this year. Lionel, um, it's been a joy as ever, and we'll be back on Tuesday, proper rest day for us tomorrow, a bit of travel as well, so a couple of hours from Vitoria to Santillana, and well, we will 
see you, speak to you, and enjoy your company again from Tuesday. Thank you, thank you, Lionel. Thank you, Esteri, Daniel. Esqueri Casco, as they say oh, in the Basque Country. Yes, indeed. But uh, not in Navarra, but not in the north of Navarra. <laughs> well, enjoy your rest day, and uh, yeah, we'll reconvene on Tuesday, and, and then you can tell me what you had for your big rest day dinner. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.